everyone is in one way, in one fashion or another, a worshiper. Worship is the act of giving honor or praise to someone or something. Worship is exhibited through the attention we give to a particular person or thing. Furthermore, worship is extolling that individual or object by venerating it as the source of happiness, and thereby finding satisfaction in the relationship or proximity that it affords. As created beings, we were created to worship. Every one of us worships. This is how we can be confident in that assertion. Every person here today worships someone or something. Everyone here today extols an individual or an object by venerating it as the source of your happiness. This may be your job, your abilities, your relationships, perhaps even your social status. It may include a person, a place, or really a thing. Nothing is beyond the limits of human worship. And in our lives, we have many times been taken to worship, to venerate, to honor some things or someone over and above the one who truly deserves worship. Friend, I wonder this morning, what are you worshiping? What are you honoring in your life above all else? What is it that gets the most attention in your life? If you're a Christian this morning, you might just sort of naturally think, well, of course, I worship God. I worship God alone. Praise God if that's what you think this morning. But I want to encourage us not to be so quick Not to be so quick to conclude that you and I as Christians do not struggle with self-honor and self-worship. If you'll see anything in our passage this morning, it should teach us and remind us that those closest to God are often the ones most drawn and given to idolatry. Even those who touch and handle the holy things can be given to idolatry. Friend, what are you worshiping today in your life? What is it that has the supreme place that only God deserves? What captivates your life, your thoughts, and your attention? What is that this morning? Well, friends, we've gathered this morning to hear from God and His Word, to think about worship, to think particularly about idolatrous worship, To think about how you and I are often given in that that way. Well, last week we began a study through 1 Samuel. Over the next few months, Lord willing, we will spend time in this wonderful book. One of my favorite Old Testament narratives. A beautiful story about God's work of redemption. And we saw last week that the, the author or authors of 1 Samuel use a particular type of narrative writing in which they contrast characters 
to highlight that character they hope to hold up and emulate before us. Throughout the story of 1 Samuel, you will see really generally three main characters contrasted with one another. You will see also a contrast between the strong and the weak. A contrast between the significant and the insignificant. Uh, Those who are important in the eyes of the world and those that just seem like nobodies. Those from popular cities and those from obscure towns. And as we read through this story, I hope that you see the unfolding glory of God. That as we see the story unfolds by turning our attention not to those leaders who are strong and powerful, those who the world would pick and say, yeah, that's who we want for a leader, the wealthy one, the one who is successful, but rather to see that God chooses those who are weak and insignificant that His glory might be displayed. The story of 1 Samuel fundamentally is a story about God. About how God would raise up a leader for His people who would reflect His own glory so that the people would reflect God's glory. As the leader of the nation reflected God's glory so the people would reflect that leader and thereby reflect His glory. The story also reminds us that God does not choose His leaders the way the world does. The story also tells us that God is not done with His people. Even though the people are in willful rebellion against God, in in gross sin, God is faithful to His promises. And He will not abandon His people And He will not allow His Word to fail. As this story unfolds before us, it is God who is put on display in the midst of Israel. It is God who is displayed as He leads them to choose a leader after His own heart. Friends, this is the, the story before us. And today we're at the beginning of that story in chapter 2. In verse 11, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, page 226 in the Pew Bible. I invite you to open that, Let's have that Bible open in front of you. 1 Samuel in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And, and before I read, I just want to make a note, uh, lest I frustrate some of you. Um, your Bibles... Um, and the chapter divisions and the heading divisions are not inspired by God. They're placed there by editors who think these are natural breaks. And sometimes they get it right, and sometimes they get it wrong. And in this particular case, it seems best that verse 11 goes with the narrative we're considering today. Though we could put it either place. Beginning in verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all of Israel who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me the meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if you do not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would, tell, would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she has asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of the evil doings, dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel grew, continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed... Reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that, you, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, 
shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Well, as we consider this passage before us this morning, we could summarize it in this way. The Lord will destroy those who showed total disregard for him and his commands, but will give life to those who faithfully honor him. The Lord will destroy those who showed total disregard for him and his word, but will give life to those who faithfully honor him. Well, hopefully as I read that passage there, you saw the contrast that was before us. And you can see the outline sort of very clearly before you in the way uh, the narrator shifts between Samuel and Eli and his sons. In our passage this morning, we see two contrasting pictures of worship. One picture that is dismal and darkening, and another that is hopeful and illuminating. The first is a picture of self-worship, of depravity that leads to destruction. The second picture, however, is is a picture of the worship of God, faithfulness that leads to flourishing. And these two pictures are seen through the decline of Eli and his sons and the rise of Samuel as the final judge of Israel. As the story unfolds in the chapter, you can see in verse 11 a reference to Samuel. Then in verses 12 through 17, the demise of of Eli's son. And then in verses 18 through 21, this shift back to faithful Samuel. And then back again in verses 20 through 25, that shift back to Eli and his sons. And then again, a shift back in verse 26 to Samuel growing. And then finally... A final word of judgment, but then in verse 25, a word of hope that God would raise up yet and again a faithful priest. We find the narrator shifting to contrast these pictures of worship, pictures of honoring God or honoring self. And so this morning we will really just consider these two points. One, self-worship, depravity that leads to destruction, And the worship of God, the worship of God, where we should see that faithfulness to God, faithfulness to honor God, leads to flourishing. Well, first in verses 11 through 26, we see this first picture of self-worship. And our story begins here with hope and despair, with joy and sorrow. We want to remind ourselves that these are not good days for the nation of Israel. Uh, These are not pleasant days. First, as we'll see next week, these are days in which God has gone silent. Chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us that there were not frequent visions in those days. In other words, God didn't have much to say to his people. He was pretty much fed up with them. And so he didn't talk to them very much. 
Imagine God not speaking to his own people. Uh, Frustration and anger because of their willful rebellion. As you read through the book of Judges, you see God raising up a faithful judge. But then that faithful judge is just demise. He, he's still sinful. He still has problems. He's still weak. And, and the question is begged, will there ever be a righteous leader again? Will there ever be a leader like Moses or Joshua to lead God's people in faithfulness? The story begins in that sort of despairing way. What is God doing? Samuel and Eli. And what we see here in verses, really verses 12 through 17, is self-worship described. We see self-worship described in the worthless sons of Eli who don't know the Lord. Look there in verse 12, we're told, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Imagine the scene for just a moment. Two men who were priests of the Lord. That is, they served at the temple where God's presence was among His people, and they were ministers. They shepherded the people. They were the ones who stood in between God and His people. They were the ones that were to lead God's people in holiness and righteousness, but here we are told they don't even know God. They were merely going through the motions. And as we will see, they were using God for their own glory and their own greed. They were using God to feed their own selfish desires. We are also told by the narrator that they are worthless men. This is what Eli thought of of Hannah back in chapter 1 in verse 16 when she says to Eli, do not regard your servant as a worthless man. Woman. That word there is the word Belial. You might be familiar with that word Belial from Paul's usage of it in 2 Corinthians when he says, What has Christ to do with Belial? What does that to mean? It means that, that the narrator here is telling us that these men were sons of the devil. These men were wicked men. They were evil men. They were like their father, the devil. Yet they did not know the Lord, we are told. And we see not only their two characteristics, but also in verses 17, uh, verses 13 through 17, two, two examples of their behavior, if you will, two indictments against them. So we might conclude, oh, maybe they weren't that bad. I mean, after all, they worked at the temple. I mean, maybe some of that stuff kind of rubbed off on them, right? If you come to church, you become more holy. At least that's what we often wrongly conclude, as we'll see here. They were using the temple and the worship of God for their own intimidation and extortion. We see two examples, one of intimidation and the other of extortion. They were intimidating God's people. The priest had a responsibility to offer the sacrifices on the altar. And here, most likely, through the description, though though we can conclude this really has no Old Testament background in the sense that what they were doing was so manipulated, it's really hard to tell exactly what sacrifice this was, but if we were to make a decision, perhaps this was the peace offerings outlined in Leviticus chapter 3. 
seems to best fit what's going on here. And what would happen is, is that the, the, the peace offering was an offering given by an individual to God uh, as, a, as a, a thankfulness to an answered prayer. When you think about the context here, it seems to fit well because Hannah's prayer has been answered by giving Samuel. So perhaps that's what's going on. We're not really sure. But, but if it is, and regardless of what sacrifice it is, one of the things to know is that the priest got a cut of the sacrifice to live off of. So when the, when the people would come and deliver the sacrifices, when they would cut the meats up and they would boil the meat and sacrifice it to God, some of that meat was for and given to the people and the rest of it was keep, kept by the priest, right? So the one offering the sacrifice would take that offering, take it home, and use it in a celebration at his feast, celebrating God, answer to prayer. And the priest would then take the rest of the meat and use it to feed his family. It was a way God cared for the Levites, the, 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 the family of Aaron, the sons of Aaron, through the regular offerings God's people. Very similar to the way pastors um, are cared by the congregation. They are, they, they are given resources by the congregation, perhaps a home to live in, perhaps financial resources to care for their, their family as they minister to the people. And so God had, had designed within the law a way in which the Levitical priests would have been provided for so that they didn't have to have a full-time job. They, were, they, were, they could live off the sacrifices. But what the sons of Eli were doing was saying that that was insufficient. That what they were receiving through the sacrifices wasn't good enough. And so what we see here in this practice, we're really not sure what the heck they're doing, but, but, but they seem to be just going into the pot trying to pull out the best meat, the choicest part of the meat. This is the indictment we'll see later in a moment through the prophet that comes to Eli. He says, why do you, why do you profit off of the choicest parts? We see that also in the extortion case here that's laid before us in verse 15. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would get, come and say to the man who is sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you only raw. God had said you can have the boiled meat, you can have the, the, the meat for the priests. And for these guys, they're like, no, we want, we want to grill our meat. Boiling, it's not good enough for us. In other words, what they had received from God was insufficient. And so they were using the resources of God's people to abuse. They were fleecing the, the sheep. They were abusing and just as scandalous as this sound, it's just as scandalous as, as the kind of financial improprieties that you hear in churches today. That, that grieve you deep in your soul when you hear about pastors, you know, stealing money from a church. Or wanting to buy billion dollar jets and all these other kind of things. It grieves you to see, and friends, it should grieve us to see the kind of self-worship described here in this particular passage. But also, we see in this passage, self-worship contrasted. We see a very contrasting picture, don't we, in verses 18 and following? A picture of, of self-worship, of these worthless men feeding themselves, using God and abusing God. And what do we see contrasted? Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. 
a boy clothed in a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and, and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the portion she asks of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy grew in the presence of the Lord. You see, kind of a nice bookend, right? Samuel ministering before the Lord. The Eli's sons, the, the priests, they don't even know the Lord. Here Eli is before the Lord, giving glory to God, and there he is growing in the presence of God. And nestled in the middle of that is Elkanah and his wife Hannah. And what I want you to get, take away from this contrast is their faithfulness. It's their faithfulness. We remind ourselves what we learned last week about Hannah. Hannah was no user of God. Hannah wept. Hannah prayed. Hannah begged God for a child, and God answered that prayer. But what do we see Hannah doing? Do we see Hannah like checking out, God, you answered my prayer. Now I'm going to go on with my life. I'm going to only use you when I need you. Only when times are bad, I'm going to pray. Only when I, when I need something, do I get on my knees in prayer. No, we don't see that from Hannah at all, do we? She's back again. God's answered her prayer. But yes, she's back. Why? Because her relationship with God was not dependent on answered prayer. As so often ours are. So often our lives are dependent upon God answering our prayers. That's the only reason we worship God. is so that He'll answer our prayers. The only reason we're here today. So maybe that little prayer we, had, we offered this week would be answered. Not for Hannah and Elkanah. They were faithful. But they were the weak. They were the insignificant. They were the nobodies from no, no important town. But here we see the narrator again highlighting the strong and powerful, the ones who are in control, the ones who are extorting God's people, contrasted with the meek and the mild and the humble. Just there, offering their sacrifices, giving glory to God, and honoring Him. But we see here also in our text, as we just look really briefly, you can mark them if you will, verse 11, verse 18, verse 21, and verse 26. First note the similarities they, they have in this contrasting story. We see first Samuel, the boy, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So, so there he is in the presence of Eli. He, he's, he's learning from Eli. He's, he's learning how to be a priest. His mom gave him to the priesthood. Eli's teaching him. But then in verse 18, what do we see? We see no Eli. Samuel's out on his own now. He's doing his own thing. He's young, but he, he's ministering before the Lord and he's growing Right, So that his mom has to bring a new robe every year because he gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger each year. He's growing in the presence of God. He, he's there ministering before God. He, he, he may perhaps be homesick. We're, we, we're not told. But he's there faithfully serving the Lord. And then in verse 21, And the boy grew in the presence of the Lord. And then in verse 26, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. 
we see here a foreshadow. Luke, in his gospel, quotes verse 26 in reference to Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, three times Luke makes mention of the boy Jesus growing in the presence of God. And in chapter 2, in verse 52 of Luke's gospel, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Luke wants us to understand this verse in light of Jesus, not merely Samuel. Luke wants you to be reading your Bible in such a way that you see Jesus in verse 26, that you see Jesus in verse 11, in verse 18, and in verse 21. Luke wants us to understand that what God is doing here, He has done ultimately in Jesus Christ. That God was raising up a future leader, a future man who would come and lead God's people in faithfulness. Because as the story unfolds, we'll find that Eli, or excuse me, that Samuel, well, he's not that leader that is promised here in that prophecy. See, you see, Samuel's sons really weren't any better off than Eli's. They were just as problematic. It reminds us of our need for a righteous leader, a righteous priesthood. As we'll see, it reminds us of our need for Jesus. We also see in verses 20 through 25, self-worship destroyed. In, in a hopeless father who can't seem to get a handle on his sons. Look with me at the story again. We are told that Eli is very old. In chapter 3, we'll learn that Eli is going blind, that Eli is so old he can't see. He's having a hard time. He's really, really quite struggling. He's overweight. We're told that he's very old and very fat. You see, Eli was complicit in the sins of his sons. As they were feeding themselves and growing fatter on these sacrifices, so Eli grew old and fat. Picture of his own sinfulness and his own hopelessness. And we hear in the story are told that he, Eli is hearing a rumor about his sons that they've turned the temple into a brothel. That they're using the, the women that are ministering there. In other words, they weren't greedy just for food, but for other things as well. And Eli goes to his sons and rebukes them and says, what is going on? Is this really even possible? Is the story I'm hearing true? How is this even possible? Why do you do such things? We see here in verse 25 a sense of hopelessness, don't we? Eli is hopeless. He does not believe God is gracious. Look, if you sin, he says, against a man, God will mediate. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? I think Eli's lost his mind. Because the Bible and the law instructs us that all sin, ultimately, whether it's sin against another person, is against God. He's hopeless and unable to restrain 
his sons. And we see in verse 25 the declaration of the Lord through the mouth of the narrator, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. They, hadn't, they didn't want to listen. God's word had been turned off in their ears. They had no desire to listen anymore. They were resolute in their sinfulness and wickedness. There was no halfway for them. It was all or nothing. But we also see in this passage that it was God's purpose, His sovereign purpose of election to execute these men and to annihilate this family from the face of the earth. We see here the tension of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Nowhere does the text mitigate the responsibility of Eli's sons to repent of their sins and to go God's way. Nowhere in the text do we see that they were innocent and, and because of God's sovereign purposes that they were going to be forgiven. But rather it was God's purpose to display His glory by killing these two wicked men. Like Pharaoh before them, God is sovereign over the affairs of men. And He condemns those whom He will condemn. He will have mercy on those whom He will have mercy. It is not because Eli's sons are more wicked than us that God has had mercy on us. But it is because of His own sovereign purposes that He saves some for His glory. This is the story of the Bible. This is the God of the Bible. God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. And as we consider this text, I wonder what are you worshiping? There is a warning to us here in this text that is so evidently clear. Those who do not honor God will be destroyed. That if we continue in sin, it will kill us. By God's glory and His glory alone, justice will be made sight. We see often in our culture today where justice is delayed and we talk about justice delayed and so on and so forth. But friend, we rest in the fact that there is not going to be a delay in justice from God. That one day there is coming a day when God will justly condemn this world and our sins will be laid bare before Him. This passage also calls us to repentance. Friend, heed the warning that Eli gave his sons. While they did not turn from their sins, you turn from your sins today. Repent of your sins. Sin so often silences God's Word in our hearts. It hardens our hearts so that we cannot hear God. And my prayer for you today is that God would, would unstop your ears through His Word, that you would turn and trust in Him. Brothers and sisters, I wonder how are we tempted to self-worship? We see a model of faithfulness in Elkanah's family. It's so worth imitating in our own lives. Imitating this faithful family even in faithless times, even when there was no good leader, and I just know that as a testimony to so many of you, as you've shared with me stories about how you stuck it out in a really bad church with bad leadership, 
with even maybe sinful leadership, but you were faithful. You stayed there. You prayed for that church. You prayed for that ministry. And you endured. You were an example of faithfulness, even though those around you and the leaders were faithless. May we trust God and His glory. Friends, we live in faithless times. We live in times not of of prosperity in the gospel. So we must see what takes precedence in our lives. What is it that we give ourselves to above and beyond God? I wonder also, how are we using holy things of God to serve ourselves? Perhaps it's by seeing the local church as a place for your needs to be met rather than you meeting the needs of others. You see, in our consumer culture, we've often kind of brought that into the church and thought that the church was about us, the consumer, that we're here to consume a product. And if that product isn't good enough, if that product doesn't measure, if it doesn't you know, meet our needs and tickle our ears, well, then we'll just go shop elsewhere for a different product that will meet our needs. Well, friends, that's not the Christian gospel, nor is that the Christian church. The local church is not a place of consumption, but of production. The local church is a place where you are a producer. You ever wonder why Jesus talks about fruits all the time? Trees produce things. They don't consume fruit. They produce fruit. And if you are a tree, you're a producer, not a consumer of spiritual things. How are you like Eli's sons? Coming in week in and week out. Consuming spiritual things up. All the fruit of the people around you all the while not producing a single thing. Do we give more attention in our church to rich and powerful than to the weak and poor? How does that indict us as a congregation? How much attention do we give in leadership to those who are successful in the eyes of the world? Who the world says, yeah, that's a good leader, therefore we need him to lead us. Oh, we need her. Should we not be warned that what the world appoints as leaders often honor themselves rather than God? Why would we desire the same for us? Let us look to the places God looks for leaders. And so our first picture is concluded. A picture that is dark and dismal. And one oriented around self. Self Self-worship is at the core of our fallen human depravity. And the Bible reminds us again and again that it leads to destruction. Friends, there are only two ways to live your life. One way is perpetuated by our own selfish, sinful desires for self-promotion and self-indulgence. And the other way is centered on God and His glory and His honor above all else. And this is the second picture we see in the passage before us in verses 27 through 36. A picture of the worship of God. Faithfulness that leads to flourishing. First we see here that the worship of God is again dismissed. The worship of God is dismissed. In verses 27 through 29, we are told that an unnamed prophet shows up. This is important. This is a big deal. 
Because again, God's word was scarce in those days. There was no frequent visions, we are told in chapter 3 and verse 1. In other words, there wasn't a whole lot of prophecy going on. And so when a prophet showed up, it was time to sit down and to listen. But, but what this prophet brought was, was not a word of hope, but a word of judgment, an indictment upon not only Eli and his sons, but upon the nation. And it's summarized in this way, when grace, when the grace of God isn't enough. When the grace of God isn't enough. Well, that's what we see in verses 27 through 29. The prophet goes through, hey, did, I, did God not choose you, Eli, and your family? Eli was a descendant of Aaron. Hey, didn't I choose Aaron to be my priest and his sons after him? And it just recounts all that God had done for Eli. All the, all the times God had blessed Eli. He's like, didn't I choose you out of all the tribes? Didn't I invite you into my presence? Like nobody got to be in God's presence but these priests. But yet, it was insufficient for them. God's grace wasn't enough. And so in verse 29, why then do you scorn my sacrifices, my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? It was for me and my people and you used it for your own self-glory. And here we see that God provided sufficient resources for Eli and all the Levitical priests, but that proved insufficient. And so also is... God is saying, listen, I was worthy of worship. This is what he's saying. I, if you would just stop, Eli, Hophni, Phineas, if you just slow down a minute, put your greed aside and look at the blessings I have showed you. I have given you sufficient grace for you to honor me. But friends, that is so often the case, isn't it not? When God blesses us, we end up worshiping the blessing rather than the God who gave us. This is again what we see contrasted with Hannah. Hannah doesn't worship Samuel, but worships, worships God. She doesn't worship the blessing, she worships God. In verses 30 through 34, we see worship of God demanded. God says very clearly, I will honor those who honor me, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. In other words, God says, listen, the goal of worship is me and not you. Many years ago, my wife and I were in a church that was so consumer-driven, so idolatrous, that worshipers would leave the service saying, man, I didn't get anything out of worship today. Friend, you were not the object of worship today. God was. But if you come to church again, thinking it's all about me and what I want and my happiness, 
Well, you'll surely leave thinking I didn't get anything out of worship today because you were the goal of worship, not God. God says, listen, if you want to honor me, honor me and I will bless you. If you want to honor yourself, know that you will be destroyed. God blesses those who honor Him. This is a rule, a principle that you can take home. You can cash it every day of every week. Now, just a caveat here. This is not some name and claim it kind of theology. Unless someone kind of point the finger at me and say, Ah, preacher, you've fallen into prosperity gospel. No, no, no. God says that I will bless those who, who honor me. It does not say that I will, you know, make your bank account full and I'll give you a new car and I'll give you new I'll give you whatever you want. As we heard in the scripture reading this morning that sometimes God's blessings come in the form of trial, suffering and pain. Come in the form of cancer. Let us not be confused. And consider blessings the way the world considers blessings, only to benefit ourselves, but blessing in a way that gives God the glory and honor and praise. God judges Eli's family here. He says, listen, you're done. I'm done with you. I'm done with your family. I'm done with your wickedness, and I will destroy you. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, Eli's family is judged. And Hophni and Phinehas in chapter 4 are destroyed by the Philistines. They are killed. And then, oh, old fat Eli dies as well. But here in our passage, I want us to conclude in this. The worship of God is restored. The worship of God is restored. A promise is given by God. In the midst of suffering, excuse me, in the midst of judgment, God saves His people. That's the story of the Bible. God's glory, God's glory, God's glory, God receives the glory when He judges. And through judgment comes salvation. He judged the nation of Egypt. and Through that judgment saved the nation. Of Israel. And here, through the judgment of Eli, through the condemnation of Eli, God promises salvation. He promises a faithful high priest. Look at it in verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. God says, listen, I don't need you to do it. I, I'm not asking you to be a part of it, Eli. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to raise up a faithful high priest. I'm going to do it for myself. For his own glory, God acts. God promises in this passage a faithful and righteous high priest. He promises a, a priest who will be holy. He will do what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure, a, a sure house. A house that is, is foundational. A house that's built not on the sand but on the rock. And, I sh- and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Here that word anointed is a reference to the king. That promised king. And he promises a high priest. In 2 Samuel in chapter 8, we see the fulfillment of that in Zadok, the faithful priest, the faithful priestly family who administered to David and the rest of David's family. And particularly here we see a trajectory from this text all the way to 1 Kings in chapter 2 in verse 27, when a descendant, when a descendant of Eli 
goes before Solomon and begs him for life. And Solomon refuses. And the author tells us that that was a fulfillment of this text. That God had judged the family of Eli. The text bears a trajectory to Jesus and reminds us that our need for a high priest, our need for, for someone who to mediate on our behalf, someone to intercede for us. Eli asked a question, who will intercede if you sin against God? His name is Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a faithful high priest who laid down his life as a propitiation for our sin. That means that all of us are sinners and deserving of God's righteous judgments. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, came as a high priest and died on the cross. He was judged. The way Eli was judged, Christ was judged Not for his own sins, not for the sins that he had committed, but for all the sins of those who would trust in him. Jesus died for our sins that all those who would repent of their sins and trust in him might be saved. And he was raised again from the dead on the third day as a justification for our sin. We are justified through his resurrection. Verse 30 of chapter 2 prods us just as it prodded Eli, that this is who God is. That God will destroy those who do not give Him praise and honor. That includes you today, friend. If you will not repent of your sins and trust in Christ, if you will not honor Him in your life, He has promised in His Word To destroy you. He will share his glory with no one. Not even you. Those who are called by God. Given the authority of God to stand before him. Were removed from his presence. Allow that to just sink into your soul today. A warning to all of us that those who will not give God glory will be destroyed, even those who are closest to the things of God. We think that in seeking our own honor and glory, we will flourish in life. We will have happiness and joy. If we just live for ourselves, serve ourselves, you know, care for ourselves. I hear that so often, and all I hear when someone comes to me and says, you know, you've got to take care of yourself, you've got you to think about yourself, you've got to do things for yourself, all I hear is the whisper of Belial. The whisper of death. The story of those who honor themselves above God is a story of death. Brothers and sisters, let us heed this call to faithfulness. Let us be warned and afraid of our just God. Not fear God, not be afraid and like hide from Him, but truly reverent Him. That if we play with God, He will destroy us. Do we honor God in our lives? Do you honor God in the things that entertain you? 
Do you honor God in the things you read? Are you honoring God in the, in the kind of things that you pilfer on social media? Are you honoring God in the way you care for others? Are you honoring God in the way you spend your money? In what ways are you honoring God? Friends, as a congregation, we will only flourish as we are faithful to God's Word. Only as we are centered solely upon God's Word. As long as we know that we go to God's Word to understand what a church is. What a church does. And who is the church and who is not the church. It's only from Scripture that we learn these things. And we should be leery of anyone who says to us, hey, let's go this way. Let's consider this really good book or this really good conference. Only as we rightly understand God's Word and faithfully obey Him will we have the hope of flourishing as a congregation of God's people. Let us not be deceived into Western business practices or youthful and emotional worship services or or program-driven discipleship as the key to our success. Let us not measure success the way the world measures success. Let us measure it upon the centrality and faithfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only means to life. Friends, we've compared these two pictures. I hope you've seen them well. Two different ways to live. One way, centered around self. The picture of self-worship. There we saw Eli and his two sons, people who serve themselves rather than God. This picture of self-worship is destructive. But we also saw a very contrasting picture. A picture centered around the worship of God. There we saw Hannah and Elkanah and Samuel who served the Lord rather than themselves and as a result received life. Friends, there is only one way to live that leads to life. You have the choice in life. There is only two ways. You can either live God's way or you can go your own way. And my hope this morning and for the day after that and the day after that is that you would continue to go God's new way through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we Come humbly before you today, sinners. Everyone in here today rightly deserves judgment. None of us deserves to be saved. Every one of us are as guilty as Eli and his sons. Every one of us deserves to be put to death by you. Every one of us deserves hell. But you've shown mercy to us. Who are we? Who are we that you would show mercy? That you would send your son to die for our sins? We are no one. But by faith we trust that Christ has satisfied your wrath. That Christ has died the death that we deserved. And live the life we should have. And now we are clothed in His righteous life. We are as righteous as Christ is righteous. 
We have been given eternal life through His death and through His resurrection. And our prayer today is that you would expose, dispel any unbelief in our hearts. Bring us to Christ, we pray today. Open our eyes that we may see the sin that has so long deceived us. May we go God's way. May we go your way. May we honor you for your glory and our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.